Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in Northwest San Antonio. We also find ourselves uh, at a very, um, very drastic time in our church. We have come into a season that seems to be permeated by cancer. Um, I think pretty much every person here has been touched by at least one close loved one, um, one very close friend uh, that has been either affected by cancer or taken by cancer. I I spent um, this week in the hospital rooms of many of our congregation members who are battling this horrible disease, some of it more or less successfully. Cancer is terrible. It's terrible because we don't really understand it. And those things that we do understand about it are incredibly scary. You see, cancer is is not like a regular disease where you can just give somebody medicine and they, they get better. It's not like an infection where if worse comes to worse, you can cut off the affected limb. Cancer is far more insidious. Each and every cancer cell holds within it the seeds of a new outbreak of cancer. And those of you that have endured cancer know what that is like. And so when we treat cancer, the doctors have to be very careful that they don't spread this horrible disease as they are trying to heal. Because so many of the things that we would normally do to heal a disease would just end up spreading. The, the word that is used for, for cancer that is spreading is the word metastasy. It has this dreadful overtone that comes with it. This idea of something spreading uncontrollably. This morning, I, I want to retake that word. This morning, I want to give us a different perspective on that word because while that is the method that cancer uses to grow, what we're going to find today is that that's also the method that God has used to spread His church. This belief, this movement that to the Jewish nation was an incredible disease in a very short order spread throughout the Roman world. And we're going to see how God begins this process. But before we can do that, we have to start in a place of persecution and death and tragedy. Last week, we talked about the ministry of Stephen, and we talked about the martyrdom of Stephen. We talked about the first Christian martyr. And we left our story with the bleeding and broken body of Stephen laying on the ground, And the Pharisee Saul standing over the dead body. That's where we pick up today. We read in in chapter 8 verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution. Saul approved of the judicial murder of this man. He held the coats. Many people believe that he instigated it. Because you see, Saul was an incredibly angry man. Right? We, we've gone through and looked at the different opponents. The Sanhedrin was jealous. 
of the apostles. The leaders of the Freedmen Synagogue disagreed with Stephen, but Saul hates them. He hates them enough to kill them. See, he sees Christianity for what it is. It's a threat to the entire edifice of Judaism. He knows how deeply threatening Christianity is to everything that he held dear as a Pharisee. The total overthrow of the movement that he has given his entire life to. He hates the church and he hates Christ. And that hatred is about to break out all across Judea. See, with the body of James still warm, the anger of the Sanhedrin finds an outlet in this angry young man, Saul, and it just explodes. The persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, not focused on the well-loved apostles, right? Everybody in town seemed to like the apostles. They all liked Peter. Peter was cool. He healed people. He did miracles. He taught. And so he was incredibly hard to oppose. But the church members, on the other hand, those people were vulnerable. So we read, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And a little bit later, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. See, the storm had been brewing for a while. The leaders were done with the Christian movement. They started off by beating Peter. They warned him. They told him to stop. And now, as they've killed Stephen, now they've lit the fuse on a bomb, and the bomb is sitting right underneath the houses of the Christians in that town. But it wasn't all of the Christians. It was one particular group of Jewish Christians that the persecution focused on. It was the Hellenistic Jews. Now, if you guys remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this kind of difference in the Jerusalem church. There were two different kinds of Jews in Jerusalem. There were Hellenistic Jews, and there were Hebraic Jews. And the difference was that the Hebraic Jews had grown up in Jerusalem. They had grown up in Judea. They spoke um, Aramaic as their, their, their tongue. They ate the same foods that their ancestors had always eaten. They did things the same way. They worshipped in the temple. They were used to being Jews in Judea. But the Hellenistic Jews were different. These were the descendants of the people that had been taken away into slavery. The people that had fled the different waves of Invaders that had come into the land. They had gone all over the Roman world and even as far away as Persia, maybe to Africa. They had built lives there. And over the generations, they had changed. They spoke a different language. They spoke Greek, not Aramaic. They ate different foods. They dressed differently. And if you were back then, you probably would have noticed that they smelled differently. And yet... Over time, the most devout of the people in these communities had decided their one hope was to retire in Jerusalem, to return to Jerusalem at the Pentecost to see the temple before they died. And so this group of people had come back to Jerusalem and they had formed a synagogue. And this 
was where Stephen ministered, and this is where the persecution broke out. Because it is always easier to hate people that do not look like you, that don't eat the foods that you eat, and they don't talk like you. And so these people bore the brunt of the persecution. Luke uses the Greek word lamanio to describe what happens next. It Saul literally ravages the church. The word is, to, is used to describe when a city is sacked by an army. It's pillaged. It's destroyed. It's the same word that's used when a wild animal catches its prey and begins to rip its flesh. That's what Paul does to the church in Jerusalem. This persecution takes several forms, and we can understand much of it by Paul's own words. See, Paul, later on in his ministry, would describe the things that he did. He'll confess that he went from house to house, dragging men and women into the streets. He would attempt to coerce them to blaspheme Christ by beating them, imprisoning them, and in some cases, killing them. That's what Paul was doing. He was pitiless, and his fury stopped at nothing. Later on, Paul would describe himself as the chief of all sinners because he persecuted the church. This was not some attempt at humble bragging. This wasn't some kind of way to sound complicated so people would trust him. No, no, no. He really believed that he was the chief of all sinners because he remembered all of the blood that he shed. He was so bad that when Christ came to him, Christ will accuse him of attacking him personally. He'll say, Paul, Paul, why do you attack me? I want you to imagine what that would be like to stand in front of the risen Christ and have him ask you why you were attacking him. Saul was not a happy man, though. Saul was deeply riven. He was not a man at peace. Right? When Jesus comes to Paul, he asks him, Paul, Paul, why do you struggle against the goad? The image there is of a man trying to get an ox to move. And to try to get this ox to move, they use an ox goad, which is a pointy stick. You just pull, you poke the ox until the ox moves. And so the image here is that God has been poking Paul to try to get Paul to move. And Paul keeps resisting the ox goad. Now, I don't know about you, but I have spent large portions of my life resisting the call of God. I'm great at it. I spent years denying the call that God placed on my life. And I will tell you, despite having a great job and a wonderful family and a nice house and a nice church, I was miserable. There is no place on earth quite as bad as the life of a person resisting the call of God. See, Paul is in rebellion against God, and God keeps after him, and yet he is living as an enemy of God. Now, I want you to understand this, guys. Often the people that lash out against God the hardest are the people that God is working on the most. 
But whether he was being pursued by God or not, Paul's persecution has a serious impact on the church. It disrupts the harmony, the, the idyllic bliss of this early church. We've, we've talked about this, right? This church was filled with people that had come to Christ. They were sitting under the preaching of the apostles. They held all things together in common. They would sell treasured personal possessions to care for the people that were there. They shared their food every day. This is amazing. This is fellowship, the likes of which you and I can just barely comprehend. And yet these people were enjoying it. And this persecution ruins it. Why well, we read, and, and they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. See, this persecution was terrible, but it was not outside of the plan of God. Indeed, it was part of the plan that God had laid out from before the beginning of time, so much so that Christ had told the people exactly what was going to happen. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Those of you who have been around me for any length of time will know that I have a saying. Whenever things get really bad, or not that they get bad, but if they ever do, I say, I'm not better than my boss. And they killed my boss. He predicted that this type of persecution would occur. He said, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering a service to God. He's saying, not only are they going to drive you out of the synagogue, not only are they going to try to kill you, but they're going to feel like they're doing the right thing by doing it. That you are so morally disgusting that the only thing that can happen is for them to kill you. But this persecution, well, Desperate was not universal. The only people that seemed to have been persecuted were the Greek-speaking part of the church. We know that because later on, there's going to still be a church there in Jerusalem. But it's going to be primarily Hebraic Jews. And that's going to have some interesting implications later on in the book of Acts. What we need to focus on right now is what happens to the people that are driven out of this community. We're told that, they, that the disciples are scattered like seed into the wider Roman world. Right? But this scattering isn't random. These people are going to flee the persecution of Paul, but they're going to flee down the roads that they came from. And they're going to flee back into the communities that they came from. They're going to go back out into the Roman world. And they're not going to go empty-handed. They have to leave their adopted home. They have to go back into pagan places where people did evil all the time. But they're not going to go empty-handed because they're going to go and they're going to bring with them everything that they learned from the apostles. See, this persecution is a massive crisis in the early church, but it was also a massive paradigm shift for the early church. 
As we read the first couple of chapters of Acts, we see a church that is very successful, but also increasingly inward focused. Right? After Ananias and Sapphira die, we're told that people really didn't want to be near them. Because after all, that's some serious power for somebody to drop dead like that. And so we have this massive church of thousands and thousands of people living together in harmony, but becoming increasingly separated from the people around them. And now comes this change, this disruption. And change and disruption can be hard for people. We spend most of our lives trying to build bubbles of comfort that we can just kind of live in. And yet disruption and change are often what spurs the church on to new and better things. Right? We're told that the men and women fleeing Jerusalem take with them knowledge that they gained at the feet of the apostles. In verse 4 it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. See, see, there's an amazing opportunity that these people have. There's conflict, there's crisis, and there's opportunity. There's a, a proverb that goes like this. In the, in the Chinese character for change, there's two parts. There's danger and there's opportunity. And what we see is that the apostles and the disciples are taking advantage of this opportunity to spread like seed throughout the Roman world. The word that is used here is diaspora. And that is a very important word. It's the word used when somebody scatters seeds, but it's also the word to describe the Jewish people as they had scattered throughout the Roman world. And the image that we're having here is that this is a second diaspora. This is the people of God going back to those communities so that Christ can be preached in those communities. The irony is that the persecution and the scattering of the Christians only led to further increase in the body of Christ. The Jews had hoped that they would crush the church in Jerusalem. But what they did was scatter it throughout the world. The image that I'd like to give you of this is one from um, when I was in college. Okay? Now, I'm not telling you this because this is something you should do. You should absolutely not do this. But when I was in college, I was in the core cadets at Texas A&M, and we used to do mean things to each other because we were 18 and mean. So what we would do is we would take, right before inspection, because our rooms would be inspected, we would take talcum powder. If you were nice, if you were mean, you would, you, you would use... Um, the toner from a copier, but that's neither here nor there. And we put it in a manila envelope, and you would stick it up underneath a guy's door. And then you would take a great big book and drop it on the envelope, and it would spray talcum powder or toner all over the person's room. And you could never get all of it up. That's what happens here. The Christians spread out throughout the ancient world, and the Jews are never able to hunt down the remnants. 
The men and the women fleeing Jerusalem may have been fugitives. They may have left their possessions, but they retained the gospel, and the gospel transformed them from victims into victors. Transformed them from refugees into missionaries. That's what we see in the gospel. Persecution becomes the water that feeds the tree of faith. Persecution does exactly the opposite of what the Jews had expected. And so we open up this new chapter in the life of the church and we follow a new guy. We're introduced to a new guy. His name is Philip. All right, we read, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And a little bit later, he describes kind of what that looks like. He says, for unclean spirits crying out with loud voices came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and so there was much joy in the city. Now, it's important for us to understand here, this is not Philip the Apostle. Philip the Apostle is back in Jerusalem. This is Philip the Evangelist. He is one of those men that was selected to be a deacon. We read about him a couple of weeks ago, right? Like Stephen, he's faithful to the task that God led him to. Like Stephen, he's going to be used in a massive way. And it's important here that we understand this. There is a shift in the book of Acts at this point, away from the apostles. Right? We know that the apostles are doing amazing things. But in this section, we're looking at what these ordained men of God are doing. These are normal guys. These are not people that Christ chose to be his apostles. These are normal men that have been converted and raised up, and are now out on the forefront of the expansion of the church. Philip is going to do some amazing things. He's going to take the opportunity provided to him by the persecution, and he's going to go north to the city of Samaria. It's located about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. This is probably the capital of the northern kingdom, back in the book of Kings. After the rule of Solomon, the son of Solomon behaves badly, doesn't rule his people well. The kingdom separates. The northern tribes form their own kingdom, and they're going to fight against Israel for about 150 years. Ultimately, though, they're going to create their own kind of pseudo-Judaism, begin to worship idols, and God is going to punish them with the Assyrians. The Assyrians are going to come in and conquer all of them. Some of them are going to get shipped off. Some of them are going, to, are going to intermarry with the Canaanites around them or some of the people that brought in. What you end up with is this kind of weird mix of different groups that sort of worship God in a parallel temple. A group of people that the Jews will never accept as being fully Jewish. They were a half-breed, half-caste group of people that were hated by the Jews. In some ways, they weren't Gentiles, but they were almost worse than Gentiles. We, we see Jesus working with them. He uses them as an example of what your neighbor is supposed to be, to be shocking to the Jews who hated them. About 150 years before this, the Jewish king John had come down and destroyed their temple and reduced them to submission to the Jews. And the Romans, in one of these weird twists of history, had come in and actually liberated them. If you have to be liberated by the Romans, your life is really complicated. 
The Romans came in and liberated them. And they had been living separately ever since then. And yet Philip has used this opportunity to go to this place filled with people that the Jews hated, and he's preaching the word to them. And, and what's almost more amazing is that the Samaritans are actually responding. He's doing amazing works of healing. He's preaching the gospel to them. And they're responding. We read in, in, in verse 6, and the crowds with one accord pay attention to what was being said. This is very unlike what happened in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the people were riven. There was division. Some people were in favor. Some people weren't in favor. Some people were like, oh, maybe we should listen to some more of this. Other people were like, no, no, these guys are, are horrible. Let's go kill them. But in Samaria, the Samaritans were of one accord. They paid attention to what was being said. They saw the signs. And there was much joy in the city. Philip takes the opportunity that the persecution brings. He goes to an unreached people group, shares the gospel, and they realize that the gospel is the great equalizer, that there is no half-breeds, there are no physical rejects, there is no place away from any human within the gospel. But I would put to you, this is not something that Philip would have done had he not been forced out of his comfort zone by the persecution that happened. The persecution of the church resulted in the scattering of the gospel and joy in the hearts of those who had previously been rejected. See, God uses the gospel to enable the early church to overcome persecution through transformation. The gospel is disruptive. It's transformational. It has always been that. It is a radical rejection of everything that we believe to be important as human beings. Right? As human beings, the devil whispers in our ears, you're a great person. You're awesome. You bring a lot to the table. God should be happy to be with you. What does the gospel teach us? It teaches us that we are sinners from our mother's womb. That we don't bring anything to the table. That, but by the grace of God, we are lost. The world teaches us that we don't have to change. That we're good as we are. That we get to follow our heart and we'll be happy. The gospel teaches us that our heart is wicked and broken in the factory of idols. So the gospel is radical and it tears down everything that it comes into its path. But, but it also enables us to become something different. And this transformation enables us to be able to deal with the persecution and the opposition that the world brings. It's a catalyst that allows us to change to become what is necessary for the spread of the kingdom. The persecution that broke out forced the church out of its comfortable environment and forced the members of the church into the fields that were white for the harvest. See, there is this tendency as we come into a place and we do a work and, and there's a, a huge harvest that comes in that we want to kind of sit down in it. 
and just kind of stay there. We're like, well, the harvest was good here 20 years ago. It'll be good again. We just need to work a little bit harder. We need to get some of this other stuff that's kind of some of this stubble on the ground. Maybe we'll pick up some of this stuff over here when the field right next to us is white for the harvest. It's prepared if we'll just get up and move. The truths of the gospel transform us and enable us to be able to move to the places that God has called us to go. Brothers and sisters, as a church, we have to allow the gospel to transform us so that we can reach the harvest that God has prepared for us. Now, I'm just going to be real with you guys today. We have all kinds of challenges facing us as a church. We know what they are. We're an aging church in a changing neighborhood. Right? None of that's changed. Maybe that's the elephant in the room we don't want to talk about. That's the reality. We're an aging church in a changing neighborhood, and in many ways, the deck seems stacked against us. Right? We live in a community and in a nation that is increasingly opposed to Christianity. We can be honest and say that. We can say that our young people were part of a denomination that 75% of our young people leave between the time they graduate high school and the time they get married. Those are the numbers. And so it seems like the deck, is, the deck is stacked against us, like we are facing the headwind of history, and our only option is decline. But this is only a problem if we refuse to change in the ways necessary to meet the challenge. See, if we are faithful, we will allow the gospel to transform us into what we need to be to be able to bring in the harvest that's here. If we are faithful, we will accept the fact that nothing is more important than the gospel. One church leader says this, he says, the gap between how quickly you change and how quickly things change is called irrelevance. If the world changes faster than you are willing to change, you will become irrelevant. But, but see, here's the light at the end of this tunnel. And, and it's not a train. The light at the end of this tunnel is that we have the gospel, and the gospel transforms opposition into opportunity. Transformed opposition into opportunity in the ancient world and spread the faith of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire and then around the world. And the gospel can transform our opposition into opportunity here as we sit on this corner. If we let it. See, we live in a world with increasing opposition to the gospel. In our culture and in our countries around the world, we see that people are increasingly opposed to the gospel that we preach. But here's the flip side of that. As society tears itself apart, we also see that there are tremendous opportunities for the spread of the gospel. People from around the world are enduring hardship and chaos, bloodshed and war 
and they're being resettled right here. I'm not talking about right here in the United States. I'm not talking about right here in Texas. I'm not talking about right here somewhere in San Antonio. I'm talking about right here within a mile of this church. Thousands of people from across the world are being brought here. Brothers and sisters, that is an opportunity. These are people from nations that you and I would never be able to go to. Nations where you would be kidnapped or killed on sight, and they live down the street from you. These are refugees, but the Bible calls them something else. The Bible calls them sojourners. Those who journey outside of their land. This is what the Bible says. It says, if a stranger or a sojourner dwells with you in your midst, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. If we will follow the gospel, if we will allow it to transform us, then we will love the people that have been brought here, and the gospel will go out from this place. And the opposition... The danger of demographic change will be turned into the opportunity to reach the nations for Christ. See, the gospel transforms domestic persecution into pathways for global evangelism. As converts and as people come to Christ here in the United States, they go back down the roads, back to the countries that they came from. And transform those nations. How do we know that? Because we've seen it happen. And it doesn't just happen here. I had an opportunity to speak to Brandon Carroll. He's one of the missionaries that we work with in in Iquitos, Peru. We work with them planting churches in Iquitos. Iquitos then sends missionaries from Peru all over the world. He was telling me today about a woman who cobbled her money together and saved up enough money to move from Peru to India to begin church planting. She's living in an apartment in Mumbai. She converted her Muslim roommate and her Muslim roommate's two Muslim friends and has started a house church. Because when the gospel transforms us, it takes opposition and it turns it into opportunity. The gospel transforms victims into victors. See, our our society has changed, and we are no longer the people that stand at the pinnacle of society. We are not the moral people that everybody looks up to. We are the hated minority. Used to be that as a Baptist minister, I had a tremendous amount of social clout. That people would defer to me and people would trust me. As a Baptist minister now, I'm one of the least trusted people in our entire society. And as evangelical Christians, many in our society see you as being morally evil. Not wrong. Not partaking of a religion that they don't particularly agree with. But morally bankrupt. And that is problematic. 
is problematic because it used to be that all we would have to do to evangelize is put a church on a corner, open up the doors, and people would come in. They'd hear about Jesus, accept him, and become Christians. But, but I'm here to tell you guys, there is absolutely no reason for an unchurched non-believer to come into this place. So if our evangelic strategy is for non-believing, non-church people to come in here and inadvertently hear about the gospel and be saved, it's going to fail every time. We are the victims of social change. But that doesn't mean that the gospel cannot equip us for ministry in the world that we live in. See, the gospel takes victims and it turns them into victors. See, we have to embrace the new challenge of finding ways to share our faith outside this church. Right? The flip side of this is that people are increasingly isolated. 54% of millennials report that, all, that they sometimes or always feel like the people around them are not with them, that they feel isolated, that they feel alone, that they want mentorship, that they want community. That's an opportunity. As our society tears itself down and people are increasingly isolated from the people around them, what better people to share community with them than those who have the love of Christ? You know what that's called? It's called discipleship. And it's what we've been supposed to do from the very beginning. Our mission from the very beginning has been to go make disciples. And if we are going to take advantage of the opportunity that God has given us, then we have to be transformed by the gospel. We have to leave this place and we have to go and make disciples. Not me, but everyone. All of us must become evangelists and disciple makers. Each of us must allow the gospel to transform us into the kind of people that will fearlessly communicate the gospel to the people in our community. If you don't feel comfortable with sharing your faith, then you need to become comfortable with sharing your faith. Because it is literally the reason you exist. I, I want to get this across to you. There is nothing more important in life than that you share your faith. I want you to go back to this cancer that we've been talking about. I want you to think to yourself what it would be like if you walked into the hospital room of one of the people that we have who has cancer and you had in your pocket the cure for that cancer. You walked in and you talked to them about sports and about life and about their kids, and that you walked out. Brothers and sisters, every time you come into contact with an unbeliever and you do not share your faith with them, that is exactly what you've done. But it's even worse. See, their problem is not that they may die, because all of us are going to die. Their problem is that when they die, 
they will go to hell forever. And each of you holds within your experience the key to eternal life for that person. And yet time after time, we don't share it. And I've got to wonder why. I think it's because we're afraid of rejection. I think it's because we're afraid of looking like weirdos. Guess what? You're all weirdos. You got up on a Sunday morning, came down to this church, and worshipped God who came to earth as a human being and then rose from the grave. That makes you strange. You believe that the earth and everything that is here was created by God by the word of his mouth. You believe that everything in creation is upheld by the will of Jesus Christ. That makes you really, really strange. Embrace the weird. I've been weird my whole life. It's not that bad. Once you get used to it, it can actually be kind of fun. You have the key to eternal life for thousands and thousands of people that you come across in your daily life. Share it. Let the gospel transform you so that you are able to do the thing that God has called you to do. And I will tell you that nothing will be able to stop you. That the growth and the fire that we would see as a church would blow your mind. I'm begging you to do this. Because the gospel transforms personal tragedy into the opportunity for eternal life. There are people in this room today who are suffering a lifetime of separation from God. They are like Paul, kicking against the goads. Maybe it's you who've spent your life kicking against the goads, living as an enemy of Christ. Your life is a wreck. And yet the gospel transforms even the deepest of your personal tragedies, even the worst of all abuse. It transforms that into opportunities for eternal life because those things drive us to the place where we realize that we are not in control and that we cannot fix it ourselves. And if at that moment of brokenness we cry out to God, then we will live in light eternal when the stars have turned to dust. All because the gospel transforms us. Brothers and sisters, in a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you have never made a commitment to follow Christ, I would ask you to come forward. Accept him as your Lord and your Savior. If you have, you have no church and you're trying to live the Christian life by yourself, come forward and join ours. If you are bearing burdens that you are not equipped to deal with, and that's all of us, 
Come forward and we will pray for you as a church. I don't know where you are. But now is the time to make the decision. Please join us, stand and join me as I pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.